Hi, guys. We have an exciting merchandise update for you. We have a store opening in August with some super cool items that we're excited about. And we're going to get you details as soon as possible. Sometime in August, it's going to be opening. And as soon as we know the exact date, we'll let you know here and on social media. So be sure to keep an ear open. Squee! I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hello. Today, we have a special guest for you. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Graham graduated from Auburn University in 1999. She went on to complete an avian and exotics internship at the University of Georgia. After that, she did a three-year residency in avian and exotic animal medicine at UC Davis. And she's worked at Angel Animal Medical Center in Boston. She also ran the Zoological Companion Animal Medicine Service at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Dr. Graham is board certified with the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in avian and exotic companion mammal practice, as well as with the American College of Zoological Medicine. Dr. Graham is a member of multiple professional organizations, including the Association of Avian Veterinarians, the Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinarians, the Association of Reptilian and Amphibian Veterinarians, and the Association of Zoo Veterinarians. She has authored numerous research papers, chapters, and books, including 5-Minute Veterinary Consult, Avian, and Exotic Animal Emergency, and Critical Care Medicine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for that introduction. That was lovely. (laughs) That's a lot of critters. That is so (laughs) many things that you have to remember, uh, like, and what a wide variety, too. That's really amazing. Yeah, it's it's been a while. I'm old. <laughs> You're not that old. Come on. <laughs> so, Dr. Graham, what got you interested in veterinary medicine? I think like a lot of vets, I've always liked animals. I don't even remember really the first time that I really started to love animals. I just always did. And I grew up with dogs. And then we ended up living on a hobby farm and we had a bunch of things like we had chickens and ducks and pigs and a horse, a pony, all the things. And we had had a bunch of baby goats and the baby goats were dying. Mm. Um, One veterinarian came out to check them out and then the babies kept dying. Well, we had a second vet that came out and ended up fixing them. Like, I think they just had coccidia and probably just dewormed them. So I don't think it was rocket science, but at the time that was my superhero, amazing Mm -hmm. person that I was like, I want to be that vet that saved the baby goats. And then when I was in middle school and high school, I did a lot of wildlife rehab and my mom was a nurse. And so she was able to get a rabies vaccine for me, which is, um, sometimes easier said than done, but then we ended up, (laughs) we ended up doing a lot of work with various wildlife species, including, uh, we had some baby raccoons, we rehabbed all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that really got me a lot more into maybe some of the non-traditional species. Mm -hmm. I started volunteering at a vet clinic when I was in high school and I started out in the kennel. So, you know, stinky dog poop 
all the things. And eventually ended up working my way up into kind of like assisting, uh, going into some of the, the rooms. And the more I saw, the more I realized I really did enjoy it. And then when I was in vet school, I realized, um, and the people I worked for then wrote me letters of recommendation. So that was great. And I'm still friends with them, work with them. It's amazing having such wonderful colleagues. And then when I was in vet school, I realized that I was not able to handle many animals. So we were in class all day. We didn't really have a lot of clinical skills type stuff. And so I wanted to have some hands-on animal experience other than my own pets. So I ended up volunteering. Um, At the time, I was at Auburn University at the Southeastern Raptor Rehabilitation Center. And it turned out I could serve as the student medical director during my third year. So I ended up doing wildlife rehab through them, mainly the the raptors. I ended up writing up a paper on um, an intraocular prosthesis we placed in a great horned owl. And then I ended up uh, writing that up as a case report because I had heard that some of these organizations do student manuscript competitions. So I ended up entering that in a couple of meetings. So National Wildlife Rehabilitators Association, as well as Association of Avian Veterinarians. And then I ended up winning those. So I went to the conferences and I presented the paper. And so it's funny, at both of those conferences, I met key people for my future career, which I didn't realize it at the time. Um, But one of those at the avian meeting, Dr. Cheryl Greenacre, at the time she was at the University of Georgia, and she, after I presented my case, she said, so we're going to have an exotic internship at uh, University of Georgia. Do you have interest in that? And I had never really thought about it. But then I realized when I was a vet student, I kind of did my preceptor type work doing some dog and cat stuff. And honestly, I was a little bored with like the vaccine, heartworm, you know, kind of stuff. And to me, it was pretty telling that that was even before I graduated. And so the fact that it was still the weird ones that, you know, piqued my interest the most, I thought, well, what the heck? Um, I'll go ahead and try this. And and nowadays, I certainly recommend that veterinary students do canine, feline, you know, small animal rotating internships before going into specialty medicine. And I, and I would say that that's one thing that I did that, you know, in some ways I look back on and think um, if I had done small animal rotating, I might be less challenged right now when I'm, you know, 20 oh. plus years later trying to do dog and cat medicine <laughs> that <laughs> I haven't enough. done in a long time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's that's kind of how things started. And from there, then I just uh, went to Georgia. Then I got my residency at UC Davis and have been kind of all over doing this. That's amazing. That is amazing. I uh, When I'm listening to you talk, I hear a real like sense of adventure from you and and wanting to do something different and kind of exciting and challenging. Yeah, and you kind of have to be that way if you want to do the exotic species there. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a, you know, a lot of schools don't really, and that's how it was at Auburn at the time. Well, yeah. even now, there's not really a strong exotics program. And so I ended up spending about either six or eight weeks at LSU doing um, out rotations there to get exotics experience. So what I find with a lot of students that have that interest, they end up having to travel, go other places. Mm-hmm. It, it can be hard to find. Yeah, I think, you know, one of my major anxieties about working with small mammals and exotic species is that I essentially got like one 
semester-long class that tried to squeeze them all in. Absolutely zero hands-on experience in veterinary school. I think as I was graduating, they were bringing in a specialist that worked with small mammals, but that's been 16 years ago. I have no idea if she's still at the school or anything, but I never really got to like go on a rotation. And it really impacted my ability to feel confident seeing those cases in my career so far. Yeah. And I yeah. hear that all the time. And so that is uh, a little bit of the tricky part that what is foreign to us is very intimidating. Mm-hmm. And so then sometimes it takes a bit of bravery and stepping outside the comfort zone to start uh, tackling new species in practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking as new species, what all types do you work with on a daily basis? Uh, most of them are just uh, traditional pet exotic species, so avian species, and that can range from passerines like canaries and finches, the parrots, um, you know, cockatiels, amazons, macaws, cockatoos, all the exotic companion mammals um, that are commonly kept, so like guinea pigs and rabbits and ferrets, degus, gerbils, some of the uh, rats, mice, some of the ones that aren't quite so common, hamsters, and then a variety of different reptile and amphibian species. And, and that's been an interesting change. Like when I was in my residency at Davis, we saw a lot of reptiles and there was, uh, you know, desert, California desert tortoise was there. We saw a lot of those guys. When I was in the Pacific or when I was in New England, the reptile caseload wasn't so big and that's, you know, it's cold. It's hard to keep reptiles there. But now I've moved back to the Southeast and a huge amount of my caseload is is reptiles. It's really surprised mm. me, but mm. I've had several clients that breed, you know, all these rare uh, sorts of color morphs of ball pythons and things like that. So it's been interesting. I've definitely been doing a lot more in the way of snakes, lizards, um, those sorts of things. So if there was anything that you wish that general practitioners knew about exotics, what, what would you say that is? And what would you like to see general practice vets doing before they take the step of referral? Well, I guess the bottom line on it is medicine is medicine. And so whether you're dealing with a dog or cat or bird or guinea pig, a lot of the same physiologic behaviors, uh, responses are, they're just so similar. You can extrapolate a lot. And there's, there's certainly individual things that you have to keep in mind. And there's some good references on that. But I guess I would just say, I wish that general practitioners would think about their exotic species like they think about a dog and cat. Like if they're in respiratory distress, oxygen. If they're dehydrated, fluids. It doesn't have to be, especially to stabilize something before you can transfer it to a specialist. It doesn't necessarily have to be complicated. And I've seen situations where some of these guys could be easily stabilized at a general practice before they get referred for all the, you know, more in-depth diagnostics. And so I think that's the thing is, is I just, um, I would like to see more practitioners just kind of step up to, uh, you know, just being a little bit brave and trying some of those things. The other thing is realizing that the vast majority of what we see in exotic animal medicine is husbandry related. And so, you know, the most of what you're going to see in GP is really just this animal is not being kept at the appropriate temperature, not having the right supplements, not having the right diet, um, you know, birds on all seed diets, that sort of thing. So there's so much that you can do in practice to correct those underlying issues 
that could really help that animal a lot and may fix the underlying problem. It does take a little bit of research to, to, you know, to kind of find out what's their natural history, how should they be kept housed. But it's really something that if you have somewhat of a passion for, you'll start to realize you see the same things over and over. And so then it starts to kind of kick in that, oh yeah, I can do this. And then there is some stuff that can be done, a lot of stuff that can be done with the referring vet even just to to get that case worked up, blood work, radiographs, et cetera. I advise on a lot of cases where just even having that minimum database really gives me an idea of where to go. And sometimes I have situations where um, the practitioner doesn't even need to refer the case. It ends up being pretty straightforward. Um, so some of it is not as complex as you'd think. I think one of the biggest things is having the staff that's trained to handle the species, because I think mm, that's where yeah. I see most of it is like, you know, especially birds, birds intimidate everybody. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, my tech is like gold. I'm not as focused on if that patient is, you know, like I'm trying to do my physical exam and all of that, you know, she's got the bird in hand and I'm getting immediate feedback from her. So I think a big part of it is having staff comfortable handling it so you can do you know, some of the the other things that are needed besides just trying to contain the animal. Yeah, I used to be real afraid of handling birds because we always were told in tech school, be careful with birds. You don't, you look at them funny and they'll die on you. And I'm like, don't tell me that. <laughs> and the smaller birds, it's like, I don't know how much pressure I can get away with without, you know, hurting them. And the, the bigger ones, I'm like, they're going to kill me. Yeah, I don't have enough grip strength to hang on to this. So it was Oh, that always anxiety through the roof. Yep, I have I have been there. <laughs> I know how that feels. <laughs> For those veterinarians in general practice who are maybe interested in learning more but are feeling a lot of anxiety about kind of the learning curve, how would you counsel them as far as uh, finding a balance between being brave and not running into a situation that puts them at uh, risk of, you know, malpractice or that carries significant liability? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there is a certain level of baseline information that has to be established. And so there are some really great references, but also continuing education meetings, because what I find helps people the most is getting some hands-on experience. And so there are a lot of opportunities through some of those um, associations you mentioned at the beginning that I'm a part of for continuing education, the journals, which are so helpful, and even in uh, mentor situations, if there is someone close to you that is board certified, oftentimes they want to help you know, with that sort of thing. And so there are uh, a lot of opportunities. And even if you're going to, you know, a big conference like VMX, they have an exotics track, they have some labs. I find that you can easily incorporate that CE into getting your other, you know, canine feline CE and, and have that exposure that way. So I think that that can be a helpful way to get started. But I agree with you. Like there is a certain level of, if you don't have you know, some baseline information, it could go south really quick. So there, there does have to be some, uh, you know, some effort made in terms of getting some of that baseline information there. Are there particular drugs that we should avoid uh, just as a general rule when we're dealing with exotic or small mammal species? Yeah. So, 
if you think about vet school and your hindgut fermenters, those guys are pretty specialized, like, you know, horses. So rabbits are like little horses. And with our many of our rabbit and rodent species, they are sensitive to certain types of antibiotics. So especially things like oral, cephalosporins, um, we, we have to be very careful about things that we give antibiotic-wise to those hindgut fermenters. It just so happens that turtles and tortoises and, and a a few snake species, not a lot, can have issues with ivermectin administration. There, one of the things I would say is that uh, it's it's really not uh, super expensive, but there is a carpenter formulary that is available that has, you know, a whole book of exotics. And so, what I tell people is, look up for that species the drug you're thinking of using, and there's warnings like if it will say, don't use this in this species. So like you don't want to use fipronil or frontline in rabbits. So Mm. some of those things that unless you've learned that in school, it may not be fresh in your mind. And I I even will look things up, especially for ivermectin, because it's like, oh, don't use an an indigo snake. And I don't ever work on those. So it's like a good refresher. But (laughs) there's at least a great centralized resource where you can look those things up. And especially when you're in the rabbit section and you're looking up oral penicillin, you know, like it'll say, don't use it. So (laughs) it sounds like any type of drug that you're contemplating the usage, then just look it up and make sure that it's appropriate for the species that you're working with. Yeah. And and I would say too, even dosing, because the Mm. dosing is crazy. Like with, they did some PK work in citizens and they found out that for Clavamox, it was 125 mg per kg, which is like much like it's like 12.5 versus yeah so it's crazy and then like with rabbits and the the celomectin there was a study that showed 20 migs per kg every seven days to deal with fleas so they there's some weird metabolism type things and then certain drugs like um we can have some issues with itraconazole in African gray parrots. And so you may have to use a lower dose. So it's just, it's so weird that you can't even really extrapolate across avian species. And so what works in one bird doesn't necessarily work in another bird. And so there is, I would say there is a a bit of looking things up. So there's definitely a little work involved with that. So step one, get a solid reference and read it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Step two: hands-on CE experiences. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. And then, uh, probably the most important is have your staff trained. Mm. Training the staff. Yes. Because absolutely. if you and especially my tech does so much when she does the history, she's going through that, asking a million questions. What's the temperature? What's the humidity? And as she's going along, she's giving suggestions. It saves so much time you know, in the end. And a lot of times they're really excited to do that kind of education with the client while you move on to the next thing. Well, speaking of working with exotics, um, one of the things that I definitely want to touch on with my history of doing a lot of dentistry is dentistry with exotics, particularly um, rabbits, guinea pigs, rodents, Because that is a question that I was asked a lot when I was still in general practice. Like, can't you just, you know, use the instruments that you have for all of your dog patients and do dentistry on my rabbit? And why not? Can we talk for a little bit about dental disease in in those patients and the types of special equipment and training that you need to be able to serve them best? 
Absolutely. And it's a really good topic because if you're working on rabbits and rodents, you will be seeing dental disease. It's one of the biggest things that we see. And part of it is, um, especially the rabbits, guinea pigs, chinchillas, they all have continuously growing incisors and cheek teeth, so the premolars and molars. And if they have malocclusion, which unfortunately, genetically, you know, it's just like with dogs, we breed these like smushed in faces because they're super cute, but then they're all messed up. So (laughs) um, they're predisposed to a lot of problems. And so if they do have a malocclusion, that combination of continuously growing teeth and then teeth not meeting correctly, they're prone to a lot of issues. And really, I would say the number one thing when you're starting out with that is having a good oral speculum. And and there was a study that looked at um, otoscope cone versus a specifically designed oral speculum. And Mm -hmm. what was found is that you end up missing about 25% of the lesions with an otoscope cone. So that's one thing I would say it is worth investing in a speculum because you get a wider field of view and, and good lighting. But getting used to what's normal and, you know, like rabbits are like horses. They get the hooks and points like the horses do in terms of the the maxillary arcade and mandibular arcade um, being wider on top and more narrow on bottom. And then when we've got our uh, guinea pigs, they have like a 45 degree angle on their cheek teeth. So when they get dental disease, they get tongue entrapment. So when you're looking in their mouth, you're looking for the tongue being stuck underneath teeth that are bridging over. Whereas Mm -hmm. chinchillas, all their disease is under the gum line. And so you can have a completely normal, normal, well, essentially normal oral exam, but then if you palpate the ramus of the mandible on chinchillas and there's bumps, well, any of these species, if there's bumps, they've got tooth overgrowth. And you can tell that even before you do any sort of imaging. So even just getting to the point of being able to identify pathology is really helpful. Because I've one of the things I have done over time is I've worked with a lot of um, ERs and um, ER doctors training and things like that. And it is pretty often that dental pathology can be missed just because people don't know, you know, kind of what the normal is. So I feel like that's the big thing is just practicing all the normal animals looking, um, and then, you know, you kind of get a feel for what's normal and abnormal. But still, it's easy to miss certain pathology without sedation, anesthesia. And so that's when some of the specialized equipment comes in. And they do have uh, that sort of thing readily available, uh, dentistry kits and things. Um, But their gape of how wide they can open the mouth is actually quite small compared to a dog or a cat. So having speculums or a dental board to even be able to get the mouth open, um, speculums to kind of hold the cheeks out of the way uh, so that you can get a better look. Um, I tend to use uh, magnification if I can, and for sure good lighting is important. But the the regular hand pieces that you use on um, dental units, the 90-degree turn won't work when you're thinking about that narrow gape. So you need straight hand piece. Mm-hmm. And so having a straight hand piece where you can attach your burrs and go further back into the mouth is going to be important. And then with uh, specialized equipment, like there's tongue specula, there's molar extractors, there's incisor extractors that are specifically made for their anatomy. And so they have um, a lot of times curvature of teeth below the gum line, which and their their tooth goes way down, you know, much further than a dog or cat would. So it does make things like extractions challenging. Um, but for routine things, like if you're not doing major extractions, to go in and do just trimming type stuff is not super complicated. And I would say that there are some great uh, dentistry labs available that 
you know, getting the hands-on with cadavers, that's what I recommend doing to start with, um, is getting that practice. And there, there are some online type things too, but if you can get, um, in person, I think that's a great way to start. Um, but yeah, having that specialized equipment will, will make things better. And, and just don't even try if you don't have it. Cause it's just, it's, yeah, you just won't be able to see anything, access it, et cetera. Yeah. I can second that for sure. Uh, JJ and I have talked on the podcast before about dentistry, uh, even in cats and dogs, and how important it is to have adequate uh, dental suite set up. But even mm-hmm. if you have all of the things that you need for successful feline and canine dentistry, um, that does not extrapolate over to um, these exotic <laughs> species. So I, I think... I, I always like for people to kind of tiptoe when it comes to dentistry, like people yeah, kind of act cavalier about it, but you, you, you can get in trouble. Yeah. And I do see a fair number of referrals for, especially for more complex cases like extractions, because you will not be able to tell just on your um, skull films what's going on. So you really do need advanced imaging. If you have a motivated owner, CT gives you so much more info on the dental pathology that's there. And so I, I do see, I don't blame people for not wanting to go down the road of dentistry. It's not, it it's definitely a whole subset. And you know, to, to add on top of that, not just the specialized equipment, but the anesthesia and mm, trying yeah. to get airway access on these, you know, trying to even intubate is is really challenging. And so if you are doing more involved things where you need to protect the airway, then, yeah, it, it just adds on multiple layers of complexity if you haven't worked with those species that, you know, places you could run into problems. Yeah. Not to say, you know, that uh, people should run screaming away from it, but, you know, just be aware. <laughs> like. You need special training, so Be go prepared. get it. You know, go get the yeah. training, and then 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 you can do it. Oh. Absolutely. <laughs> so, what do you guys use for intraoral radiographs? Like, what type of equipment? What sizes and whatnot? Don't do them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh so ouch! <laughs> because uh, so much of the tooth is incorporated in the actual skull, what you'll find much more helpful is to get skull films. And so, you know, your typical views of the the DV lateral obliques, there are anatomic re- reference lines published to assess tooth overgrowth. You can't do that off of the intraoral films easily at all. So, I don't recommend intraoral. I recommend getting uh, skull radiographs on them. So the opposite of cats and dogs then for for these little guys. That's so interesting. So just to all of the people listening to this episode as a one-off, that is not the situation with cats and dogs. You want intraoral films for cats and dogs, not skull rads. But for exotic species, it sounds like skull rads are the thing that we need. And I would say... Sometimes I've used the intraoral type of, well, back in the day, I'm, I'm aging myself, but, you know, like using films, like I would put it actually under the head, you know, in terms yeah, of trying sure. to get like a skull mm-hmm. film on a little animal, you can absolutely use it that way. It's just that actually positioning it intraoral is not going to give you the type of information that you're going to need in terms of assessing um, dental length, that sort of stuff. Very uh, important. That makes sense. I mean, the angles are going to be all different and difficult given the different angles that the teeth are with the different tiny critters. So that that does make sense. You know how we do like a minimum database in medicine? Like, what's the minimum equipment uh, checklist that we need (laughs) to work on these guys? Not just dentistry, but regular, any type of working on them. 
Yeah, I would say that one of the biggest things is being able to provide thermal support. And so you can always use dog and cat type setups with incubators. You can, some people even make them out of like, you know, little uh, fish tanks and things like that, but you need to have a way to keep a patient warm. So for example, your rab, your uh, birds and your reptiles that come in that are sick, they need warmth. You know, they may need an incubator that can be around 85 or 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So some pretty significant heat. Whereas with our, with our rabbits and chinchillas, uh, rodents, they may be very sensitive to heat stress. And so we're going to have to be able to hospitalize them at different temperatures. So being able to regulate that temperature is going to be important. Also thinking about a lot of these species are prey species. So like rabbits are scared of dogs. If they're Mm. around a lot of predator smells and loud noises, that can be problematic. So if you have an area in your hospital where you can keep them separate, that's going to be ideal. Um, A lot of the same stuff we would use, like I do a lot of um, fecal exams, for example, glass slides, cover slips, saline, microscope, like all that stuff is, is kind of the same. I would say that in terms of being able to provide basic CPR, for example, um, birds have uh, complete tracheal rings, and so we don't want to use cuffed tubes. And so having uncuffed tubes, oftentimes practices don't have uncuffed tubes. And so that's something that uh, is helpful if you are hospitalizing avian patients that need nutritional support. Feeding tubes can be helpful for that. we may see birds come in for feather damaging behavior or or potentially mutilation. And so specialty e-collars is helpful. You can make a lot of those on your own. Like a lot of times I just use foam pipe insulation that's taped up. So there's a lot of stuff you can do, you know, kind of just be creative about it. Um, and then drug formulations, keep in mind that you can't really pill a parrot. So <laughs> having uh, liquid suspensions for things can be really helpful. And so we do actually have quite a bit of that where we may have drug formulations that are going to be different than, you know, what you would use in a, in a commercially available uh, pill, for example. Um, we do a lot of work with like ferrets get adrenal disease. Uh, they have all the hair loss. And so there is a product called uh, Deslorelin, which is placed kind of like a microchip, but it helps with adrenal disease in ferrets. And that's something that practices can easily get. And you can pretty easily incorporate ferrets into your practice. They're a lot like cats. But then having some of that specialized equipment. I find that for some of my surgeries, having microsurgical instruments can be helpful. Like if you're going to go down the road of like avian intrasolomic surgery, for example, having smaller types of equipment can be helpful. And um, there there are a lot of specific products like um, laryngeal mask airways for rabbits where you don't necessarily have to intubate. It's a little easier to provide an airway access. Um, things like that can be helpful to have. But you just to do minimum type stuff, you don't necessarily need all of that. There's some basic things you can do to stabilize if you're planning to refer the case elsewhere. Okay, so we're going to switch gears for a little bit. What are some pet peeves you have as far as referrals go? Well, I'm just happy to get referrals. So I guess I would say that <laughs> I, don't, I don't have too many pet peeves, um, but I guess I this would say- This question always makes people nervous. <laughs> I, I would say that some of my, when I've worked with ERs where I've trained people, then I have pet peeves because it's Uh-oh. like, I told you how to do an oral exam and you didn't do an oral exam and that's just not acceptable. So I, I do sometimes have those sorts of things if, if I've told people about it, but I would say that not getting an oral exam- 
pretty much oral exam is important on all of our patients. And so we would do that on a dog or cat. So doing it on an exotic is important. Not doing your research in terms of drugs. Like we talked a little bit earlier about drugs not to use. Across the board, I would say steroids are not indicated in exotic animal medicine, except when it comes to ferrets. We put a lot of them on PRED because that treats the insulinoma, the lymphoma, well, <laughs> right. it, it manages it. Manages. But for the most part, we don't want to be using steroids, uh, even topical steroids. I, I saw a rabbit with steroid hepatopathy because of a oh. topical steroid. So we want to make sure we're not doing harm. And then, you know, one of the things I see a lot is GPs will offer uh, trimming. They'll be like, well, I don't do exotics, but I'm going to offer wing trims. And that's really something that is not as straightforward as you might think. And interestingly, in some countries, it's considered unethical. So you can't actually do wing trims in in some countries. So that's a whole, that's a whole other, you know, um, discussion about whether or not we want to do wing trims or not on some of these species, but you can cause harm with excessive trims. And so that can be um, something that's a little bit tricky. Will you just define what uh, wing trimming is just in case people are listening and not familiar with the practice? Yeah. So with uh, our parrot species, if they don't, if they, if they're fully flighted, they can escape. And Ah. so Mm -hmm. I happen to keep a flighted bird, flighted birds in my house, but also I don't have kids and I have pretty sedentary dog and cat that that don't try to eat them. But we do have situations where people don't feel they can keep a flighted bird safely in their home. And, you know, because birds will fly into open toilets or pots of boiling water, things like that. Uh, so some people oh choose uh, <laughs> trimming. And so generally, we're just trimming the outer primary feathers, uh, depending on the size of the bird, like we trim more for the small bodied birds, less for the bigger body birds. But the thing that I see a lot of times is um, and, and most often it's pet stores that do it, but people will just take all the, you know, primary, secondary feathers. They don't restrict the amount of feathers that are taken. And then the birds will fall like a rock. And just wow. even just two weeks ago, I had a cockatiel come in with a tail base split because it had its wings trimmed too severely. And so instead of gliding to the ground, it fell and that will dorsally avols the tail and then it lacerates the base of the tail near the cloaca, it's it's bad. And they can fall mm-hmm. on their keel and have a keel split, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And so that's the kind of thing where if you are going to start grooming, offering grooming services, you know, beyond just like nail trims, just make sure you know what you're doing. And I would say uh, putting in a plug for the Association of Avian Veterinarians, they do have some great resources. If you are planning to do uh, more work with birds, I would highly recommend Joining their organization, they have a lot of resources, including, you know, how to do appropriate trims if you're going to trim. And the same thing with, you know, the exotic mammal veterinarians and reptile and amphibian veterinarians. With uh, joining those organizations, you have access to a lot more um, resources that can help you doing those sorts of things in practice. Well, Dr. Graham, as we get ready to round out our podcast today, I am wondering if there are any fun cases that you could share with us? Uh, well, one of my favorites, um, which is not a case really because it was before I even, probably even before I was in vet school, I was doing <laughs> wildlife rehab and I had some baby skunks. And this was the time where I was volunteering at a vet clinic doing, um, working in the kennel. And I came home one day and my, my mom made me keep the skunks in the laundry room. Like it was a separate 
room outside of the house, like not even connected to the house because skunks. Sure. So (laughs) I got home from work smelling like a dog, didn't think about it, went in to check on my little skunks. And the three of them came forward in the cage and they just started stamping their feet and they look so cute. And I just kind of leaned in a little and then (laughs) you know what happened next because all three of them sprayed me. And so then note to self, when a skunk is stamping, don't get closer. Um, But I just thought that's kind of a nice example of learning by trial and error. So I know it can be intimidating to think about uh, doing exotics, but I would say there is a lot of trial and error, which hopefully the error is not killing your patient. Uh, but there there are, everybody makes mistakes and there are situations you're going to get in where you you don't really know what to do. But again, just trying to extrapolate what you know from other species is helpful. Um, One of my favorite cases is actually a ferret. Uh, This is when I worked at Tufts at the vet school. I had a ferret that came in with an anemia. And most often, ferrets that have anemia, well, lymphoma is one of the common things they have. But then also they can get hormone suppression. Um, Their adrenal disease is not Cushing's. uh, It's not mineralocorticoids. It's uh, sex hormones. Mm -hmm. So they can have, like, for example, uh, high levels of estrogen. And that can cause bone marrow suppression. So one of the things that can happen is then they can get anemia. So I had this ferret come in and she was bald, like bald, like the typical (laughs) adrenal ferret, no hair, like actually not even just on the tail in her body, she was bald and she was anemic. And so then I was like, oh, okay, well, she's got bone marrow suppression. So I did uh, blood work to try to figure things out. And fortunately at the time I worked with a great clinical pathologist. And when she read the slide out, She said, find out what the ferret is eating, because this looks like brassica ingestion, potentially find out if the ferret's eating garlic or onions or something that could be causing a hemolytic anemia. And I thought, well, that's weird, um, because I didn't think that's, you know, I didn't even think about that. Well, then it, it turned out the ferret had been sick. And what the owner said is that she had been giving it chicken soup for it not feeling well, and she put a bunch of pearl onions in oh. the soup, and the ferret was picking out all the onions. It's just eating <laughs> like cocktail hors d'oeuvres, you know. Delicious. Yeah. So then I was trying to make it, you know. Anyway, like sometimes you will. People say, uh, you know, when you hear hoof prints, don't think of the zebras, but sometimes it will be a zebra, and that's one of my favorite cases because it just really was helpful having that clinical pathologist. And I guess I would say that that is something that's that is helpful when something isn't quite making sense, because I've had several cases that clinical pathologists, you know, like I've, when I was in uh, New England, we saw a lot of lead toxicosis. And so then the clinical pathologist would be like, hey, test for lead, you know, so there can be a lot of things you can find out from working with colleagues. So I think that's really um, helpful. When I worked at Angel Animal Medical Center, we had this frog that came in And sometimes frogs are bads. You should never really do any sort of substrate that they can pick up and eat, especially rocks. So this one frog came in and I don't even know how many rocks it ate, like so many rocks. They had put some gravel at the bottom of the tank. And this frog had so many rocks that when I picked it up, it sounded like a sack of marbles. (laughs) 
What? Like, like, oh no! I, I took radiographs. Like it, we click like yeah, we click. The, yeah. They're, oh. they're, they all oh, click wow. together. So when I took um, when I took radiographs, it was like there was a little bit of frog and a whole lot of rocks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was a fun case. But I ended up just using um, of all things, like I mixed a, a topical gel to anesthetize the frog and then kind of held cool. it upside down and did a flush. We got all the rocks out. It was fine. What? But it was, it was, it was kind of crazy. Um, I would always save the pictures and the video of that. Cause that was a fun case. Yeah. I would save that too. Like my mm-hmm. God, I'd look at that every day and be like, I did that. I got those rocks out of that doll. Uh, frog. Do, you, do frogs eat rocks in the wild? Gosh, I don't know. I that is an excellent question. I think there's a lot of things that they do in captivity, oh, you know, true. that they wouldn't other, you know, cuz they're in these small enclosures, they're not getting appropriate calcium. That's, you know, that sort of thing, and I think they do tend to have a lot more of these issues in captivity versus doing their natural things they would be doing hmm. in the wild, actually eating what frogs eat, not just rocks. Fair. So, so we <laughs> had like pika, really, mm-hmm. I guess. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of, one of the other cases I like a lot just to, I've had cases where, you know, I think we all do it. We get this stereo tunnel vision and we just kind of, we look at something and we're like, oh, it's X, Y, Z. And I, I tend to do that sometimes. And so I like the cases that remind me not to do that. Um, so I, I did have a case when I was an intern at university of Georgia. And at the time we were doing a study and we were trying to compare radiographs versus CT to evaluate um, spinal injuries in raptors. And so trying to evaluate spinal injury in avian species, they have like that fused spinal cord. It's very difficult. So we had a case of a great horned owl that had um, no deep pain and it was um, just unable to stand. And it was, you know, one of those things where it's like, this animal has a really grave prognosis because it has no deep pain. And ultimately with those cases, if they can't be rehabbed, we end up euthanizing them. Um, In this particular situation, we had it in the hospital for a little bit because we were, it was a holiday weekend. We were going to do some um, imaging on it. Anyway, later on in the case, I walked in one time and the bird was standing and it was using its legs normally. And I'm like, what? Like, that's not supposed to happen. I don't know how that happened, but every now and then I'll have these like really bizarre things that I cannot explain. Um, obviously there was probably just like some sort of swelling, spinal swelling versus true severing of the cord, obviously. But I I had another one of those when I was at Angel, we had this rabbit that was getting, um, an abscess, a facial abscess, uh, related to teeth addressed. And that I remember because the owner was one of the techs there. And when we were doing the surgery, um, unfortunately, the rabbit arrested. Mm. And I had the surgeon there, myself there, and the criticalist came in. And we all, like, there was no heartbeat. There was no breathing. Like, this rabbit was dead. So we were doing CPR, and I went ahead and – but, you know, fortunately, the rabbit was intubated. It had IV catheter. So we were able to actually effectively do the things. So I called the owner and told her what was going on. And I said, uh, prognosis for recovery is poor and, um, let, you know, I I think we should stop CPR. And she said, well, just wait. I I just want to come in and say goodbye to him. So don't stop. And so, and she lived close by. So literally the moment that she came into the hospital, and I know this because I had a pager and the front desk paged me. As soon as my pager went off, I kid you not, we got this rabbit back. And that rabbit, like we were doing CPR for 
I, clo- I mean, gosh, all said and done, it must have been close to 30 minutes. And I was like, what? And the criticalist was there. The surgeon, we all looked at each other like, uh, this is weird. And so then um, we ended up like, oh, well, maybe we should close this rabbit's face up because this, you know, just in case it lives. Well, sure enough, that rabbit recovered in ICU. And the next day, you would never know anything was wrong with this rabbit. Like it was completely normal. And so those cases always amaze me. Like, you know, we talk about how fragile the exotic species are, but they sometimes really surprise me. I had a a heat stress chinchilla. They're very sensitive to heat stress. And it was to the point of seizuring, hypoalbuminemia, like we were thinking plasma transfusion. It was, it was really bad. So I had talked to the owner and said, I really think we should euthanize this. She, she had had limited funds. Well, she decided to, I, I don't remember if she took the animal home or exactly what happened, but she sent me a video a month later and this animal was normal. And so, you know, like I've had, I mean, you know, <laughs> I've had a bunch of cases like that where I'm like, this animal's going to die. Sure. And then they don't. And I mean, I know everybody's had them, you know, but it's just, those are the cases that stand out the most that, that the exotics actually can be pretty tough. Well, it's the best type of mistake to make. Heck yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what advice would you give any aspiring exotic specialist? Well, I think we we kind of touched on it. I would say that really um, having a good foundation in dog and cat medicine is important. And I pretty much these days I tell veterinary students if they're interested in going into exotic animal medicine, well, first I try to talk them out of it, not just once, but like three times. And I go oh. through the whole, the reality, which is jobs are hard to find. Um, specialty training is very difficult, highly competitive. Like I evaluated intern and resident applications, you know, decades, and you've got 40 applicants, all very qualified for a single position. Like it's the competition is steep. So having a plan B is good. Even then, like in terms of trying to have, uh, trying to find a place where you could do exclusively exotics or really make a good living, not to be negative, but the reality is there's a lot of struggle going into some of these specialty fields. And so after about three discussions, if they still want to do it, I'm like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> like now, you know, all the things, uh, you know, so I would say joining the organizations that, um, you know, kind of cover the the specialty training on those species, Association of Avian Veterinarians, Association of Exotic Mammal Veterinarians, Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians. There's great journals through them, CE opportunities, um, experienced colleagues, and there are, um, you know, mentoring type programs that are available. I am board certified through American Board of Veterinary Practitioners as well as American College of Zoologic Medicine. Each one is a little bit different in terms of the specialty training, but they do have great lists of recommended reading. And I think that's a great place to start if you are interested in what what do I need to know if I want to be a specialist? Kind of looking at some of those references is it's really helpful to kind of get it a big picture overview. Um, and it is something that's very doable, I feel like, especially ABVP six years in practice working on the species that you want to specialize in, um, you can do um, non-internship uh, residency training uh, board certification. So I think that that's really makes it a little bit more doable for people that don't have the ability to take a few years and not make any money doing internship and residency training. 
So I do think that there's um, a lot of good resources and and going to some of these meetings um, like Exotics Con is a great combined meeting with all the different um, exotic folks where there is great CE labs, that sort of thing. Um, And so you'll have to seek out some of those opportunities. Um, And then if you do have somebody that you can shadow um, nearby, that's, that's always helpful. And it's, you know, with vet students, I try to get them to do, um, if they can do externship, preceptorship type opportunities that can be helpful as well. Well, Dr. Graham, is there anything else that you'd like for our listeners to know about exotics medicine before we wrap up today's episode? Well, I guess I'd like to do a shout out to all of those brave souls who are doing emergency, uh, emergency critical care type medicine. And there is a tremendous amount of crossover. You know, I, I can't tell you how many patients come in for routine care that end up being emergencies. And so I've been really trying to um, get some resources out there for people who are interested in including exotics in their emergency care. And it's desperately needed. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, I had a rabbit that wasn't eating. I called around, no clinic would see it. And so it's it's really hard sometimes for people to find emergency care. So I would say, and I, I don't say this just to like uh, toot my own horn, um, but uh, I did edit the Exotic Animal Emergency Critical Care textbook, and I feel like that's a great resource for people who want to provide emergency type services for some of these species. And so if you are in that situation, I would say if you are at all interested, please consider doing more. And, and I run the exotics tract at uh, IVEX conference too. So we always have CE there. We do a, a wet lab there every year that's um, emergency critical care procedures for exotics. So that's a little bit of a specific shout out, but um, people who are interested in, in helping with exotic animal emergencies, I really hope that we can get more people willing to do that. Awesome. Yeah. Dr. Graham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, yeah. We really value this information, and I think it'll be an interesting episode for everyone to listen to, especially the thing about the frog eating the rocks, <laughs> for real. Frog on the rocks. <laughs> he was rocking. Well, if you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook and <laughs> we're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.